0: Welcome to the first episode of Five or Flop, a podcast for the best and worst historical fiction has to offer.
1: I'm your host, Erin. And I'm Grace. And each week we'll be reading a different historical fiction book to see if they're a five or a flop. So we decided to start this podcast because we love to read different historical fiction books. And to be judgmental.
0: Of course, the best part. We're going to be setting this up into seasons. So our seasons will be divided into 12 weeks, all centered around a certain theme that kind of connects all the different books we're reading. So for our season one theme, it is reading around the world, and we'll be focusing on two books per continent. Get to know each other for the audience a little bit. Obviously, Grace and I have known each other like a year and a half now.
1: Obviously, you all know
0: that. (laughs) So Grace is my friend. She is also roommates with my boyfriend, and they live in a house with
1: six other people. Yes, you will see the roommates maybe from time to time on the maybe pod. Maybe not see them on a podcast. Okay, you will hear them. Some of them have expressed interest in being guests on the pod. Don't know if they actually will want to. If um, They will be made to. You will hear from the roommates in the future.
0: Of course. But, Grace, let's get started with what is your favorite book, historical fiction or not?
1: Okay, I do have a favorite historical fiction book okay. one of my favorite books of all time historical fiction or not is the wonder by emma Donahue. people might know it because this year it got made into a netflix movie with oh. florence Pugh. Ooh. obviously very famous very topical the movie was not bad but the book is way better it's set in i believe 1860s ireland which is an interesting time I feel like in the 1860s especially us being American you think about that as being like a really vital time in America for obvious reasons but also in Irish history um but it follows a young 11 year old girl who lives in Ireland who claims to be a miracle from God who does not need to eat so she claims that um she hasn't eaten for three months and then a nurse is sent to watch her 24 7 to see if she is defraud- defrauding the Catholic Church oh wow <laughs> Alright, and Erin, do you have a favorite historical fiction book?
0: My favorite historical fiction book is a classic and has been my favorite since about fifth grade and that is The Book Thief, which I'm sure we're going to cover at some point on the pod.
1: Certainly we will.
0: Super famous one. Um, It was made into a movie a few years ago too. That was actually pretty good, like I thought it held up. Um, But it focuses about a young girl during um, World War II in Nazi Germany. Um, and she is as the title said, a book thief and there's lots that goes on in it. Um, but yeah, I'll save it for our
1: episode on that, which is to come in a future season. And both of those are fairly popular ones. I think especially maybe the book thief because it's been out for a longer period Definitely. of time. That is a one that y'all would have heard of. But in the future we might delve into some hidden gems or hidden flops, I suppose. And honestly, uh, on the pod.
0: We're more looking forward to those flops.
1: We, we love can't to wait. tear books apart. I won't say what it is yet, but we have read a book that we're going to record later that oh, was it's so horrible, bad. so terrible.
0: Okay, Grace, next question. What was your historical obsession as a
1: child? So what time period were you like super
0: into for no reason?
1: Okay. I feel like I should upfront this because it is a historical fiction podcast is I went to um, grad school for history, yes. so like that is like a major investment in my life is being like a history person, and I was one of those kids whose entry point into history was the wives of Henry VIII. Okay, interesting. A hundred percent. That's you did go
0: as Anne Boleyn for Halloween last year.
1: I did go as Anne Boleyn for Halloween last year, and I ran into two other Anne Boleyns, which I was kind of mad about because <laughs> I wanted to be special, <laughs> um, and also they were both better than me. Oh. Um, so, you know, there's that. Um, but no, I another book that we definitely will have to read on the pod was, that I read when I was younger for it than I should have probably was The Other Boleyn Girl oh, about yeah. Anne Boleyn's sister who was Henry VIII's mistress before Anne Boleyn oh, was. Oh, interesting. Yes, so I read all of those books because Philippa Gregory has books on basically every tutor that there is, several people who aren't the tutors, But I was just so fascinated by the divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived. Like, that was my thing when I was in middle school.
0: Okay, interesting. So for me, I think there were a couple different ones. um, But I think the biggest one was the Russian Revolution and Anastasia. Maybe it's because of the movie that I got really into it. That is an
1: excellent movie.
0: It is an excellent movie. And the Broadway musical, dare I say, even better. Um, But that one, and then I would
1: also say, and I know this is one for you as well, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. 100%. I feel like the Wives of Henry VIII, Anastasia, and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire are kind of like the girls' historical triumvirate.
0: I agree. I agree. Those are the big three. My other one that maybe isn't as common, religious history. I was a religion major in undergrad um not the coolest major in the world but that's okay we went to college we
1: need everyone to know
0: exactly um but because of that i've always had like a deep interest in like religion and like those sorts of themes in books so that is also going to lend a hand in some of the ones i pick for this
1: show i'm sure certainly and i look forward to it
0: uh, final intro question what else are you currently reading
1: Funny you should ask, Erin, just today I started reading the recent book talk phenomenon, Fourth Wing. I've never heard of that. Oh my gosh. First of all, Jen, one of the roommates, is reading it, and she loves it because she loves dragons. It's like a romantic dragon book. Okay. I have read like 100 pages of it. It's like more than 500, Um, and it's about a girl who basically goes to... War college to ride dragons. Of course. Um, And then, you know, it's very tropey where like she has silver hair, her eyes are different colors. She's not like other girls Um, at Dragon School. She's not like other girls at Dragon School. There's, um, you know, her wholesome childhood best friend who's been in love with her all along, but then there's a bad boy who she shouldn't want that she does. Love triangle God. So remains to be seen on if I like it or not. It's super blowing up. I was on... Like, I think I put it on hold at the library, and I was number, like, 1,200 in line or something insane like that. Yeah. Um, But I am always willing to try popular things. Like, I feel like if so many people like something, that means it has merit, whether or not I see it. Um, So, like, you know, I've read Colleen Hoover. Like, I dabble. I dabble. (laughs) Um, So not sure if this is really my thing. I'm not the biggest fantasy reader Mm -hmm. in the world. But so far, I don't hate it.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm also not the biggest fantasy person. However, I, of course, like most people, had a big vampire phase in my teenage years. Of course. And Twilight was my life. Um, But currently right now, and I know you're going to like this, Grace, I just got off the hold list for the latest Percy Jackson book. Yay! So I am super excited. I love Percy Jackson, read them all as a kid, went back during the height of COVID, read them all and now there's a new one where apparently he's applying for college or something. I don't know, I'm like two pages into it, but oh my I'm gosh. very excited.
1: I read it when it came out the day, or the day after it came out, like very immediately. And it gave me like a little like pang in my heart because I realized I was like, oh, like when the last Percy Jackson book came out, I was 12 and he was 16. And now that the new Percy oh, Jackson no. book has come out, I am 25 and he is 17. So I'm like, how did this happen? Oh my god, he outaged you. I know. Poor thing, though, is like, damn, all this time has passed and you have aged one year. And what a year it has been for him.
0: Truly Not so Not a good much year. Yeah. And I cannot wait to see
1: what other hell he has thrown through. Oh my gosh, OK. So next week, you're going to have to give us a little update on that. Oh,
0: I will for sure. And actually, I'm preparing to go on a trip to Japan, where I have a 13-hour
1: flight that all I'm going to be doing is reading books. Oh my gosh, yeah, we were just talking about that. How many books? okay, you're not only bringing physical books.
0: No, I'm actually not bringing any physical books. I've downloaded everything I need onto my iPad. so I will not have to carry them around, which is really nice. Um, but I have like 10 books downloaded, okay because I can't sleep on planes.
1: I cannot sleep on planes either. The checklist you have when you're gonna come back because it's 13 hours there and then 13 hours back, right? I think it's 11. Okay. I think it's 11 back because you can't. But I also have like a two-hour layover and
0: then a two-hour flight back to D.C.
1: Okay. Okay. 24-hour readathon? Yeah, honestly.
0: Please vlog.
1: I should live tweet it on our Pod's Twitter account. Oh, my gosh. Please do. Not guaranteed to be all historical fiction, but I have not often met a person who only reads historical fiction. Neither have I. There are readers that read... I feel like there are people who stick to genre fiction. Yeah. I wouldn't classify historical fiction as genre.
0: I wouldn't either because you can have those fantasy historical fiction books and you can have different formats of yeah, it. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's pretty low level in terms of entry point, I yes. think, as far as genres I go. I agree,
0: I agree. Um, If you are out there listening and you do only read historical fiction, please let us know because I am fascinated and you probably have some great recommendations. Yes.
1: Please let us know what books you like and what you don't like about all other kinds of books. (laughs) Yeah, specifically that point. We want to judge here. Okay. Kindly. Kindly judging.
0: So let's kick it off with our first book, which is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. O'Farrell. Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. And I said that right, it is hamnet with an N and not hamlet, and if I slip up, that's totally on me. But we're going to get started with the synopsis, and then Grace is going to give you a little background about the author. Okay. So the synopsis goes, England, 1580. The Black Death creeps across the land, an ever-present threat, infecting the healthy, the sick, the old, and the young alike. The end of days is near, but life always goes on. A young latin tutor penniless and bullied by a violent father falls in love with an extraordinary eccentric young woman agnes is a wild creature who walks her family's lands with a falcon on her glove and is known throughout the countryside for her unusual gifts as a healer understanding plants and potions better than she does people once she settles with her husband on henley street in stratford-upon-avon she becomes a fiercely protective mother and a steadfast centrifugal force in the life of her young husband whose career on the London stage is just taking off when his beloved young son succumbs to sudden fever. So we can kind of see where this is going already.
1: Yes. So for those who are paying attention, hearing about uh, Stratford-upon-Avon in the year 1580, and the title of the book is Hamnet, you might have guessed that this is a book about Shakespeare. Hell yeah, it is. Um, Not that we will get into this later, but it's not that Maggie O'Farrell really wants you to know that because the name Shakespeare does not feature anywhere in the text of the book.
0: Nope, he is simply referred to as the tutor, the
1: father, or the husband. Yes, in relational terms only. So before we dive, okay, too deep into Hamnet, which we have lots of thoughts on, let's do a little bit of background on Maggie O'Farrell, because actually when I was looking her up, I found some things that changed the way that I interpreted the book a teeny, Oh, okay. Um, so Maggie O'Farrell was born in 1972. She is an Irish writer. She lives in Edinburgh with her husband and their two children. Her husband is also an author. His name is William Sutcliffe. I had never read any of his books, but one or two of them I think have been made into films. So I think okay. he is like pretty good doing okay for himself. Uh, Maggie O'Farrell went to college at Cambridge, or I suppose they would say went to university at Cambridge. <laughs> and also I thought that she really rose to prominence around the time hamnet came out i was familiar with hamnet and another novel of hers called the marriage portrait which erin you have read and i have not yes and i'll get into that in a moment um but she actually has written 12 books which i did not know Wow. yes nine of them are novels uh two of them are children's books really yes and of or nine of them are novels and two children's books okay so 11 in total uh, the Marriage Portrait and Hamnet were her most like successful, yes, prominent ones. that makes sense. But also she has written a memoir. That I've heard of. Okay, I had never heard of it before. It's called I Am, I Am, I Am, Seventeen Brushes with Death. And it talks about um, these periods in her life when she came close to death. Um, but essentially she wrote this book because she has a young daughter who has a really severe autoimmune disorder oh, okay. um, and she wanted to show her that like even in the face of difficulties and facing death more often than a normal person might oh, wow. you can still go on and have like a happy and productive life. Um, so that brought some meaning to me to the book because it's about The death of a child yeah that definitely
0: adds a lot more context too especially with the book and we'll get into this more later but with the book being from the mother's perspective for a lot of it that contextualizes a lot of the emotions
1: there Mm -hmm. when i was looking it up i saw a quote from her from you know like an npr interview or something of that ilk saying like oh that must be the worst thing in the world to go through the death of a child and i was like that's an interesting way to phrase it that she's written this book about that topic and hasn't gone through it but she is. Grappling with it because her child has a chronic illness yeah. that I think you know lends some reality to the Definitely. to the way that she was writing.
0: Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, um, as you've noted, she's also written the Marriage Portrait, which I read a couple of months ago, and that's part of why I wanted to start this podcast, and I'm sure we'll cover it at some point. But I absolutely loved that novel. Um, it's set in uh, I don't know what year, sometime in Medici time. Medici time, sometime in old Italy, um, and it follows this young girl going through a marriage um, to her sister's who passed away's fiance, Ooh. and how he ends up killing her question mark
1: question mark. No
0: spoilers since we're not covering it today. But Of course, of course. The actual person it's based on, it is assumed she was, she had a questionable circumstances around her death. It is widely assumed she was killed by her
1: husband. And it's kind of actually the same thing that happens with Hamnet is that a lot of its central issues are not like 100% confirmed by history and Hamnet is Maggie O'Farrell's interpretation of the little knowledge that we do have about the real-life Hamnet's life and death.
0: And that's something that I find really cool about historical fiction, I'm sure many of you do as well, Um, but there's so much we don't have specific detail about, so many lives that we have a broad stroke picture of but not the details, and historical fiction can allow us to kind of, you know, fill in some of those blanks um, on a more human level as well.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right, and before we begin talking about Hamnet, Um, We do just want to give a brief disclaimer that our judgments come based on the book and the characters within the book. Um, We're not making assumptions based on any real historical figures here that they may have been based on. And as Grace just mentioned, we don't necessarily know all the facts surrounding this, neither does the author. So our opinions are based on her writing itself, and the book is a novel.
1: Yes, the key in historical fiction is still fiction. Yes. Historical, but still fiction. Exactly. And also, maybe it goes without saying, but there will be spoilers for Hamnet. Of course.
0: Um, I think the biggest spoiler is on the book jacket, um, which is that Hamnet dies, which somehow I missed when reading the book jacket.
1: (laughs) I did not realize he died. No, when we were talking about it while we were still mid-read, I think you had finished and I was still going, and I said something like, Oh, I'm just like waiting for Hamnet to die. And you were like, How do you know that he dies? And I'm like, Because it's in the synopsis of the book, Aaron. I'm kind of the
0: worst when it comes to reading synopsises. Like, I think reading it right now on the pod was the first time I'd actually
1: read it beyond like the first sentence. See, though, that brings up an interesting point that maybe is a good place for us to start from. This book is a, I would place it in the camp of vibes over plot. Yes. Because it's ostensibly a book about. Shakespeare's son Hamnet who dies at age 11 and then later on in life obviously Shakespeare goes on to write the play Hamlet the discrepancies between those two names is part of like we'll talk about that later yes um but it's like a 335 page book at least the copy that I was reading was 335 Mm -hmm. pages Hamnet doesn't die until after page 200 and Shakespeare writes Hamlet on page 310 so that is material that you know up front. Like It's not a surprise that those things happen. Uh, Maggie O'Farrell gives you that information in the synopsis. Um, so the point of the book is not to like be surprised as these turn of events occur. It's Agreed. to be a character piece, not even really of Hamnet or Shakespeare, mainly of Shakespeare's wife and Hamnet's mother, um, who is known to history mostly as Anne Hathaway. And then it is to be a, a, you know, a setup for Maggie O'Farrell's beautiful prose.
0: I completely agree with that. Um, For me, the most important part of this was the emotion. It wasn't actually what was happening on the page in terms of what the characters were doing, but more so how they were responding to it. I did find the first part. So in the first half of the book, it flips between Hamlet's point of view and Agnes, who is more commonly known as Anne, but Grace will get into later about why she's referred to as Agnes in this book. I, that, for me that didn't really work the switching perspectives at the start I don't know why I had a hard time kind of getting into that so actually after Hamnet dies and Rip to Hamnet I did not have an issue with him as a character but the
1: book got so much better after he died RIP to Hamnet you would have loved the second half of Hamnet <laughs> exactly. you would have loved to play Hamlet <laughs> but for me
0: that's when the emotional aspects really came in so strong and For me this book was leaning more towards a flop until that happened and then there was just this huge redemption arc for me because of the portrayal of grief and emotions and as someone who's gone through a lot of grief in my life it really resonated with me to see Agnes have that frustration with Shakespeare slash her unnamed husband who is a famous London playwright it really resonated to see how angry she got with him for how She thought he was just ignoring his grief. And then coming to the understanding, rather quickly at the end, that rather than kind of like bastardizing their son's name by using him just as a character to play, the play was actually an immortalization of their son. And it's that transfer of pain to art is how Shakespeare is actually processing it and dealing with it.
1: I agree. I was also not crazy impressed by the first half, Although, like, at no point in the book was the prose bad. Exactly. Objectively, Maggie O'Farrell is a very beautiful writer. Yes. Her language is, I wouldn't call it flowery, but I would call it ornate. Yes. It's very special writing. Um, and during the phase of the book where the perspective is switching between, I guess we'll call her Agnes because that is what she is called in the book. Correct. And Hamnet. Um I was just not grasping on to the emotions of the characters, especially not to Agnes, who is an adult and thus experiencing like more complex yeah. emotion. Um, and I think honestly, part of it was because the book was in third person. I like agree. I almost felt like that put a little bit of distance between the emotions and the characters. and I don't normally, I'm not one of those people who you're like, oh, like, I love first person, I can't read third person mm-hmm. or vice versa, I don't think normally that hinders a writer's ability to convey what they want to convey. But in this case, I did feel a bit separate from the story. And I do think maybe in the beginning, it's a, it's because Maggie O'Farrell had those historic beats to hit. I know? agree with
0: that. Yeah, she had to really set up like the establishment of it all. And historical beats to hit is a really good way to put it. Um, for me the whole book would have worked a lot better if it was just focused on Agnes, because then we could have had that first-person perspective. I don't think it would have worked how she had it jumping between Hamnet and Agnes. I don't think first-person would have been that successful there.
1: No, I don't think so. Especially the voice of, like, you know, a 30-something mother Mm -hmm. and the voice of an 11-year-old boy. Those are very, you know, not congruous.
0: Um, However, I will say I think I would have not liked this book if it had been just from Agnes's perspective on the basis of the fact that Agnes really pissed me off at a lot of points. Um, She was just so quote not like other girls at times like the author really wanted to hammer home how different she was than other girls in the town. And not just because of like her healing and her animals and plants but it was just like Do you remember that one part where they got, like, their new house and they had to sleep in the attic? And it was, like, an A-frame attic. And Agnes goes, I just can't sleep under the letter A. That's the letter my name starts with. I almost threw the book across the room. I was, I don't know why. You texted me when that that happened. That pissed me off so bad. And things like that just really took me out of it because it made her into more of a Mary Sue. And we see later on in the book she's so much more than that, especially when she's dealing with her grief. But those little moments, especially throughout the first half, especially establishing her and Shakespeare's relationship, that really didn't sit right with me and didn't feel correct for her character. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because
1: Agnes, the way that she's framed is by almost this like supernatural person. Like she has like quasi-magical abilities. Yeah, there were definitely points of magical realism. Yeah, like she has um, a Kestrel, which is, like, a bird that, you know, a hawk-like bird that she, like, keeps as a pet. Um, She is able to, she's, like, a healer that uses, like, herbs and, like, people will go to her instead of the doctor. And
0: she could kind of see visions of the future, in a sense. Yeah, like, They didn't really expand on
1: that too, too much. No, like, there's, it is emphasized the whole time that she's, like, I know, I always knew that I would have two children. Yeah. And that's part of the plot point because they have three children and one of the children is Hamnet and then obviously when Hamnet dies they have two children Mm -hmm. Um, but she can speak to her mother who has passed away Um, she has all of this stuff that I think is like not based on does not really have a lot of historical basis I think this is just Maggie O'Farrell's conjecture Agreed. Um, and I
0: don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I thought it worked in
1: this book. No, I enjoyed it, and I liked that it was present. And frankly, I don't mind a little bit of contrivance in books if it mm. is necessary and works with the story. Yeah. Um, but at a certain point, I did wonder, like, it didn't seem like she had any limits to her power. I was like, it seems like she can do everything. I would um, agree. When Hamnet dies, she can't talk to Hamnet, which makes sense to me. But she, like, it just seems like there's nothing that's not within her reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet somehow when she is pregnant the second time, she doesn't know that she's pregnant with twins.
0: Yeah, that doesn't, that kind of struck me as a little confusing. I get the idea that with her first one, Susanna? Susanna yes, Susanna. Her, so
1: their first child was Susanna, who is, like, three years older than the twins, who are Hamnet and Judith.
0: And I do think it was supposed to be, like, oh, she could sense the baby's gender. She knew she was having a girl. But then because they were twins and because it was a boy and a
1: girl, she, like, couldn't figure out which yeah, was which. Yeah, she knew that Susanna was a girl. And then I think the whole time with the twins, she was just, like, it was like a normal pregnancy. Like, basically, like, she didn't know what the hell was going on. Because exactly. it was 1580.
0: And also, she – so her whole vision of her death was she knew she was going to die in bed with two children so she insisted on giving birth outside under a tree like ran away from her family to do this i didn't get that that made me confused that made me sad that she didn't feel like she could really have anyone there with her to help her
1: yeah giving birth is hard giving birth
0: is hard especially shakespeare has a sister in this book who's quite lovely and was probably my favorite character because at times she is the only likable one And that is one of the challenges with historical fiction, especially when it is based on real life people. There's limits to how far you can change them from what is known about them and what they were like. So at times, these characters can be kind of unlikable. Like Shakespeare, I have in my notes here, made Shakespeare out to be a massive
1: dick. Do you think that's why she didn't call him Shakespeare at all in the book? Because it's easier to be like, oh, the husband is acting like such an asshole than to be like, Shakespeare sucks.
0: <laughs> I think that's part of it. I also think it's because she wanted the focus. And I, for me, and I will explain this, I don't think what she was doing worked for me. But I think what she was trying to do was take the focus off of Shakespeare, the big name, the one everyone knows, and put it onto Agnes. But by doing that and by not calling him Shakespeare, that had the opposite effect for me. Because the whole time I was like, just fucking call him Shakespeare. Like she's ignoring
1: the elephant in the room. Yeah,
0: exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: It didn't not work for me, but like you definitely know that she's doing that. Yeah. Because it becomes noticeable. Again, like I said, this isn't a reveal. When you crack open the book to page one, you know it's about Shakespeare. Um, it did take me a second the first time he's introduced to realize that it was Shakespeare. I didn't even know he was Hamnet's dad the first time he was introduced. Yeah. Because they the first, there is like a little bit of point of view that you get from him. It is not very frequent, especially mm. compared to the amount that you get from Agnes or even Hamnet, who is not alive the whole time. Um, but it starts when he's 18 and they, he's called the Latin tutor. Um and it just takes a while to to even realize that, like, oh, he can read and write. Oh, he can, like, oh, they're going to get married and have a kid. Oh, it's Shakespeare. Yeah, that is the build up there with him. I feel like the
0: author should have just been calling him William the whole time. And that would have... Because lots of people are named William. Exactly. That would have... It just felt a little awkward for me just avoiding calling him Shakespeare. I don't
1: know. But... it was It was okay. It was okay. It didn't work for you. It worked okay for me. But it wasn't like, it wasn't horrible. No, it
0: wasn't. And I fully understand why she did it. And that did allow more focus to be on Agnes. And I liked it. I liked that it wasn't just another book about Shakespeare. Exactly. I liked that it focused on his family. I know I called all the, character- all the characters unlikable. But that did not mean I did not like the book.
1: I really loved this book. I just
0: thought a lot of the character flaws were visible. But that's not a bad thing either.
1: And like we said, the portrait of her grieving for her son... Mm-hmm. was by far the most powerful oh, yeah. part of the book that made it worth worth reading. Because like we said, we were lukewarm on it in the beginning, and we both agreed that the last third or so huge made redemption. up for it. It was very strong. It was a huge redemption
0: arc for me. I loved it. I was crying towards the end reading it, which I was not expecting going all the way through. But I think at the end, it all boils down to the fact that not everyone responds to grief in the same way. And that was Agnes's journey to learn that when it came to her husband, is that not everyone has the same reaction in these type of ways. And based on their different experiences in their life, like there's a whole thread about Shakespeare having been abused by his father. And then there's a whole thread about Agnes's stepmother, like wanting nothing to do with her and thinking she's like, oh, this weird witch girl. And I think based on their experiences is how they also kind of coped with that and that painted a powerful picture of their grief as well.
1: Yes, because an important part of the book is the beginning is basically flashbacks between um, of Agnes's life, like meeting Shakespeare, marrying Shakespeare, having their kids, and uh, back and forth of Hamnet becoming sick and dying of the Black Plague. Mm -hmm. And then after that is, the part—it's all about grief. The last part is about the grief of the family, and crucially, when Hamnet dies, Shakespeare is not there. Mm-hmm. He—they live in Stratford, and he is mostly in London, um, being you know, playing Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah, putting on the plays that we all read in high school. Um, so the part of that is her. She is very. Grounded like, specifically all of this nature stuff that she does. She's grounded to this specific land. She's tied to the house where her son mm-hmm. lived. Um, and he is, and Shakespeare is not there, and he is dealing with his grief by not being there. Yeah. And that drives a wedge between him and his wife by not being home, because she feels that he needs to be there to service both of their grief, and yeah. he feels like he needs to be away from the home to service his grief.
0: And I do like that Agnes has a res- resolution at the end where she sees how Shakespeare has been, you know, dealing with his emotions. And she kind of has comes to this realization that, oh, he hasn't just forgotten about us. He hasn't forgotten about his
1: son. He's actually helping his son live on. Mm-hmm. And that was something where I don't know exactly how you feel about the ending, if you liked it, if you didn't. But we both agreed the ending of the book is When Ag spoilers, not that we didn't already say it, Um, but Agnes finds out that Shakespeare has written a play called Hamlet, and she goes to confront him out of anger. She's like, "How Mm -hmm. dare you take our son's name?" Uh, She goes to the Globe Theater and she watches it, and that's when she like realizes, "Oh, he has made this beautiful piece of art that will immortalize our son, essentially." that's not so explicitly said like it's not like she's it's like, very implied oh school children will remember my like you know it's, it's vaguer than that it's not so on the nose um, and then I was reading and I was reading it via ebook so I couldn't see like physically how many pages were left and I was like oh my gosh the scene after this when the play is over is going to be so powerful when Shakespeare so and Agnes talk and it ends there there is no next scene and i was really anticipating it
0: i have gone so back and forth on whether or not i like this ending and i think i think i've decided that i really like it because i did initially want that scene where they were talking and discussing mm-hmm. but i liked how so much of it was left up to the reader to be like through agnes's eyes you are also understanding that shakespeare wasn't just ignoring them he was immortalizing his son And I don't think that needed to be explicitly said. And I feel like had that scene between the two of them talking existed, it would have kind of ruined it a bit for me.
1: Yeah. That's one of those things where, like, as written, there's literally nothing wrong with it. The only thing that I was missing was I was anticipating that scene coming. But I think it's a strength as a writer because if she had written that scene and I was disappointed with the outcome, then I wouldn't have enjoyed the book definitely Um, and I think that this is a good place to as a writer Maggie O'Farrell showed restraint Mm -hmm. and it did work I am just sad because I think that she could have nailed it
0: yeah I feel like if any writer could have it would have been her but I'm almost glad she didn't attempt it I don't know I love when an author like puts that trust in the reader to kind of almost figure it out for themselves I'm very much a reader who doesn't like to have things overexplained because I don't want to, like, have it babied down to me and watered down. Exactly. So I like that she kind of left it for us to be like, oh, here you go. This is what you make of it.
1: Mm -hmm. And it was very, again, like the rest of her prose, it was very poetic. Mm -hmm. It was a a lovely wrap-up to a story that is, it's a sad story, but it's poignancy, and it's, applicability to the rest of the human experience like we all experience grief Mm -hmm. Um, makes it even though it's sad it's still like a in a way like a heartwarming story yeah definitely and it's how you want to take that grief and what you want to turn it into wow what a good point to end on do we have anything (laughs) else that we want to say about the content of Hamnet before we move on to the history I think we hit home all the major things that had stuck out to me okay well, then should we talk about how accurate was Hamnet?
0: Yes, and this is based on what was given to us in the author's
1: note and a fairly quick Google search. And a bit of extra research, yeah. <laughs> so, so don't take this as the end-all be-all. Yeah, but basically this is a really good one for us to start with because Maggie O'Farrell lays out a lot of the like major points that she was referencing in her author's note. And so we could kind of look at them and be like, oh, she said that this wasn't true, here's what is. Or she said that this is something that was important to her. How real is it? you know?
0: And this is something she had done in the marriage portrait as well, especially oh, when okay. it came to changing the character names, um, just for a little bit of ease of understanding. Um, so Maggie O'Farrell, should you ever be listening to this podcast,
1: thank you for your author's note, because it's so helpful in understanding historical fiction. Thanks, Maggie. We loved it so much. <laughs> Okay, actually, so let's start with the names. That's like a good point to go off of. So there are a lot of alternate names in this book, but obviously the most prominent ones are Hamnet, which was the real name of Shakespeare's son, and Hamlet, which is the famous play based on him. Mm -hmm. And then there is, of course, the character of Agnes, who is known to history as Anne, Anne Hathaway. So first of all, um, I figured out that Agnes is supposed to be pronounced like Agnes Um, so like they're closer than you might think though but basically back in these times spelling was just not as concrete as it is now
0: which makes sense because not everyone could read and write yeah
1: Um, so Hamlet and Hamnet are the same name like Mm -hmm. they're not two different similar names they come from the same roots essentially Um, and of course Hamlet means village like European Hamlet etc Um, It's still jarring to me, though, for the whole book to have everyone have a name that I could ostensibly meet someone on the street that had that name. Like, it was William and Joan and Eliza and and Hamnet. Hamnet. Yeah. We have
0: not stopped talking about
1: Hamnet since we read this
0: book. Just specifically
1: the name, not even the book. Hamnet is our new favorite (laughs) meme. Um, But she's Anne Hathaway, Maggie O'Farrell specifically says, is called Agnes rather than Anne in the book. Because in her father's will, he writes her name as Agnes.
0: There was one point in the book when she's introducing herself to Shakespeare that he mishears it and thinks she says Anne, and then she said, No, I said Agnes. And I didn't like that because that part confused
1: me more. Mm -hmm. But it was her, like, in hindsight, giving that, like, wink nod to the audience. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Because I guess maybe you don't know how those two names are interchangeable. Like, obviously, not everyone is. An expert in 1500s English linguistics Mm -hmm. but you can get like oh Anne could come from Agnes yes Um, but essentially it's just that names are a lot more interchangeable my favorite Halloween costume Anne Boleyn her last name she was literate she could read and write um, and she spelled her last name in a myriad of different ways Mm -hmm. like it's not even like different people do different spellings it's that The the same person does multiple spellings Mm-hmm. Um, and the only other name change in the book was that of Hamnet's Aunt Eliza, who in real life was named Joan. However, Agnes's stepmother is also named Joan in real life. So Maggie O'Farrell says, I just pick one of them to change for, for the reader's you know, ease of enjoyment.
0: And that's exactly what she did in the marriage portrait as well. And I think it made the reading experience way better because Eliza and Joan as characters are so vastly different that if they had the same name, it would have been very jarring.
1: Yeah. And honestly, that happens a lot in Shakespeare's plays when characters have, like, not the same but similar names. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm thinking about um, Taming of the Shrew, Grumio and Grimio. It gets confusing. So I appreciate that that she did this. Yes, I appreciate that as well. I have no problem with that. Um, Here is the biggest, like, leap of logic that... Maggie O'Farrell made in the Mm -hmm. book that is the singular, like, most important one. In the book, Hamnet dies of the Black Plague, explicitly. We get this whole sequence talking about how um, a flea jumped off the back of a monkey and onto a naval sailor that brought it to France, that brought it to England, and that's how Hamnet Mm -hmm. died. Um, So the book is explicitly about the Black Plague. Yes. We, as in real life, do not know what Hamnet died of his death records say that he died but not of what Mm -hmm. essentially this is maggie O'Farrell's interpretation to have him be dying of the black plague she says because in all of shakespeare's plays he does not bring it up yes and obviously it would be very central to his life as someone living in england in the 1500s exactly um and so she thinks like is this a purposeful omission and she says it's her what language does she use? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull it up. Okay, she calls it her idle speculation. That is a quote. That it is because that his son died of the Black Plague,
0: which is really interesting. And like, I could definitely see
1: that. Yes. And I don't know how much she thinks this is a real possibility, or if she just thinks that this is like a a creative poetic way to explain something within Mm -hmm. a novel Um, because I did look up I was like okay could could Hamnet have died of the Black Plague like is it possible Um, and I don't really know how disease moves I don't know if it's possible for it to just hit like a few people especially something as contagious as the Black Plague clearly Mm -hmm. was it killed a third of Europe Um, but historically I cannot find that the Black Plague was in Stratford-upon-Avon the year that Hamnet died okay however the big plague year in Stratford-upon-Avon was the year that um of Shakespeare's infancy so he had two siblings die of the Black Plague yes which when is he was mentioned in the book as well yes um so he had that experience of like fighting it head on, and then also in my research a lot, obviously the latter portion of his life, he lived it in, in London, and London was just getting hammered by the Black Plague. Mm-hmm. Like when you look up like Stratford plague gear, it's like, oh, 1564. And then when you look up London plague gears, it's like, what do you want from me? Like all of them. Every year. <laughs> Every year. That's the biggest leap of logic. I don't even think it's a big one. I think it's one of those things where, like, as a historical fiction reader, in your mind, you're like, okay, this is where the fiction comes in. Like, it creates a beautiful story. It's not necessarily true, mm-hmm. but she's, you know, braiding the threads of truth yes. into her novel.
0: Yes. And sidebar really quick. Um, Grace, we did just have a rat-themed costume party, and you went as the plague rat. Were you the, ra- the rat that gave the plague to Hamlet?
1: Well... You know, I don't like to take credit for this. <laughs> yes, I killed Hamnet. RIP Hamnet, you would have loved our rat-themed party. Hamnet, you would have loved the party. Yeah. And by the way, we did not throw the party because of Hamnet. No one else dressed as a play grad. That was my interpretation.
0: OK, and I see here that also another exaggeration, or maybe not exaggeration, but interpretation in the book um, was their family backgrounds. So it's made out that Shakespeare is pretty poor in the mm-hmm. book. He's from a poor family whereas Agnes is from a family with a lot of land. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, that's not the case, and they were both pretty well off.
1: Yeah, they were both decently wealthy. Um, The farm that Agnes grew up on was a 90-acre farm. They, I think, were, like, none of these people were rich. Yes. They were just, like, at the upper crust of the Stratford community. They were not, like, insanely rich people. But she was relatively well-to-do as from a farming family. Shakespeare's father was a glover, which is Mm -hmm. mentioned in the book. Um, He is portrayed as making some, like, not great business decisions and not being popular in the community. I believe John Shakespeare was his name, as it is in the book. But they were both, like, neither of them were going hungry. Mm -hmm. They They were fine. They were all fine. Um, and actually, this was true from the book to real life, which I thought was really funny of her. Will William Shakespeare was 18 when they got married, and Anne Hathaway, Agnes, she is she was older. We don't know exactly how much older, but it is assumed that she was somewhere around 26 when they got married. Good for
0: her. Grace, yeah. that's literally you pulling an
1: 18-year-old <laughs> when your birthday hits next month. When my birthday hits. Um, <laughs> so they don't explicitly say... How old she is in the book that I remember, but they do say oh, repeatedly, like Shakespeare's parents say to him, like you're 18, so old. you yeah. can't get married. Um, so we get she was definitely made out to be older than him yeah. by at least a margin. Uh, and I think 18 to 26 is a more considerable margin. Yeah. Um, but in the book, they basically his parents say, "You no, you can't marry her." And then he's like, oh, my parents said we can't get married. Um, and she's like, okay, well, if you get me pregnant, then we, then we can get married. <laughs> so there's an ex- incredibly jarring scene when they have sex.
0: Out of nowhere. Yeah,
1: where you're reading the page, and it's a description of, like, the sky was blue, the apples were red, he was inside of her. And yeah, just it was, like,
0: I am not inherently against sex scenes in
1: books, but this was just out of nowhere i was so surprised i have never read a sex scene that i read a full page of it before i realized it was a sex scene. that was the thing i'm like this is a creative use of your sex scene that
0: is a good way to put it
1: yeah so actually in real life um anna hathaway was pregnant when she and shakespeare got married Mm -hmm. she was like three months pregnant their daughter their older daughter who is susanna in real life as in the book was born six months after they got married um it's not necessarily known that i could find that they that she got pregnant on purpose Mm -hmm. um i do know back then like frankly it was less of a problem than we think now if you were pregnant before you got married like pregnancy outside of marriage was frowned upon but like, if you got someone pregnant and then you married them it while they were pregnant, then it's kind of like, eh, like, not ideal, but like, people be what people exactly. be. Exactly. Um, uh, in the book, Anne Hathaway is illiterate, which is also true. She was not literate in real life. Um, and they were married until Shakespeare died in the year 1616. Um, and in his will, he this is a cute little thing that I found a poem based on this, which was very sweet he left his second best bed to her in his will, which you think like, that sounds like kind of a neg. Um, Why would you not leave the first best one? Because in this time period, the first best bed was reserved for guests. So the second best bed was the one that they slept in together. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, That is sweet. Yeah, so it was like, to my dearest wife, the, the marital bed, essentially.
0: I like to think they were in love in real life, and mm-hmm. it wasn't just an unhappy marriage. Like, it's kind of painted
1: out to be in the book. Well, we didn't really talk about this in the book section, so we'll circle back to it, I guess, real quick, but Shakespeare cheated on her, like, a, a oh, bunch! Oh, significant! Was, did you find anything in your historical research about that? I didn't Google it, but frankly, I can't imagine that, like, you know men ain't shit and he didn't live with his wife for like 20 years so like there's no way that he wasn't sleeping around.
0: I assume that's true however
1: I'm going to pretend that they were very in love and he never would have cheated on her ever. Of course and that's also one of the examples of like the weird portrayal of Agnes's like magic powers she's like I can smell the other women on him and not not, like oh perfume like she could just tell like magically that he was sleeping with other women. Exactly.
0: All right. And I think we're going to move into our final section, which is where we rate the book on a scale of five to flop.
1: Uh huh. And, and of do... course, flop being one. Flop
0: being one, five being five stars. And of course, there's middle ground. So we'll give you real numbers as well. But we have a very helpful data scientist on hand, one of Grace's roommates, Ashley. Thank you to us... our data scientist, Ashley. Thank you to our data scientist, Ashley, for making us a calculator. Um, and our calculator is based, obviously, scale of one to five. and in several different categories historical fiction vibes so just how we felt about a book prose originality and characters so i gave it a five in historical accuracy a 4.5 for vibes 4 for prose, 4 for originality and 3.5 for characters for a final scale score of 4.2 okay
1: and how do you feel that that accurately reflects what you rated it i think because we're going to rate it based on this calculator from our data scientist Ashley um, but we're also going to just rate it based on vibes and I'm going to be honest I don't know how I feel about the calculator yet we're going to use it this season and then see we're going to test a test run I'm
0: going to compare it to what I put in my story graph which if you aren't on story graph you need to be because it's the best reading tracker ever but I put it into Storygraph before I had done the calculator, and I had scored it a 4.5, so I feel like a 4.2 is
1: pretty accurate. Yeah. And on Storygraph, which is again our book tracker of choice, we are not Goodreads people, although we support Goodreads people, but we are Storygraph people. We like the data Storygraph gives us. We want we. hard numbers. Exactly. And Storygraph will let you rate a book in quarter increments. So from, you know, 4, 4 4.25, 4.5. So we can only get so close to what this calculator will calculate.
0: So I think 4.2, pretty close to what I had done. Mm -hmm. And I rated it a bit
1: lower. Mm -hmm. I gave it overall 3 for historical accuracy. Frankly, mostly just because the thing that it hinges on, Hamnet dying of the Black Plague, was conjecture. Okay, see, I had not read the research as thoroughly when I did this. But... I see your point. I see your point. We have different interpretations, and we hope that we do because it makes the podcast more interesting. Exactly. That's what the fun is all about. Um, So, three for historical accuracy, three for vibes, five for prose, four for originality, and three for characters. So, for a final total of 3.6. Okay. And I gave this a 3.5 on Storygraph. So, actually, this pretty accurately reflects, at least for Hamnet, what I think about the book. Our data um, scientist,
0: she gets to keep her job for another week, even though we're
1: not paying her. Ashley, you're not fired. And also, I hope you're working very hard on our intro music so we can edit it in later. Yes. Um, But yeah, I think even though we agreed about, like, broadly about things like, oh, the first half of the book was weaker, the yes. prose was strong all around, the back part really revived it with its exploration of grief, I think we just have different... Strength of feelings about those agreed, things.
0: Agreed. And different weight of what was important. So, for historical accuracy, like you weighted the plague factor a lot more. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like,
1: well, kind of seems eh. like it's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it does seem like, again, because vibes are strong. Vibes are so strong. So, it does seem like that when you're reading it. Um, so, Grace, would you consider this a flop? No. I would not consider him to be a flop.
0: You've heard it here first, my friends. Hamnet is
1: officially not a flop. Do we need to have, like, a rating that we give it between five and flop? Do we need to think of a third word that starts with F? We'll be back in a few weeks with more categories. (laughs) As far as the title goes, not a five, but not a flop.
0: Not a five, but not a flop. And I think that's fair.
1: However, closer to five than flop. Closer, definitely. I think worth reading. If you are interested in this time period or Shakespeare... Um, if you are just an enjoyer of of ornate prose, yes. then I would recommend Hamnet. Erin uh, would recommend The Marriage Portrait also. I would. I, I cannot attest to, but it sounds fabulous. Um, so overall, I am glad that I read Hamnet. I am as well. All right.
0: And next week, we are going to be jumping over to the continent of Asia to read Snowflower and the Secret Fan by Lisa C, which is a very popular book from... 20 years ago, which I can't believe it's about 20 years ago. Um,
1: There's also a movie version, so maybe we'll be watching that. Probably not. I've heard it's very bad. And also, it's set in China and, like, only China. And Hugh Jackman is in it, and I don't know why. Oh, okay. So we probably won't be watching the
0: movie. But (laughs) until next week, make sure you're following us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Our username is fiverflop underscore pod. Check out our bio for a recommendation form if you want to suggest any new historical fiction reads to us that we can put on a future season.
1: And if you want to shoot us an email, our email is fiveorfloppodcast at gmail.com if you want to give us ideas there, talk to us about Hamnet, you know, offer to sponsor us so we can quit our jobs, you know, anything that you want. HelloFresh, we're waiting for you. HelloFresh, Audible, the DC Public Library, we would love to be sponsored by you. All right, and until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.